0: Welcome to Agam the Climate Podcast, a literary podcast on climate and consciousness. As we grapple with new uncertainties, we bring you the voices of poets, artists, and scientists who find solace and strength in the imagination. I'm Padma Perez for the Agam Agenda. Join me as we reimagine the climate crisis through stories and art. In our last episode, we spoke to Dr. Jyoti Tabula about being both a doctor and a poet in the Philippines in the time of COVID-19. Now we move to Northern Kerala in India where we hear stories from Dr. Sweta Ram, a pediatrician and poet. Her poem, Dear Son, is featured in Agam's forthcoming anthology of climate literature out later in 2021. Shweda was working in a rural hospital when COVID-19 hit Kerala. She was chosen for COVID duty and was separated from her toddler for half a year. She wrote Dear Son during that separation. In this conversation, she tells the Agam agenda about her experience at the front lines of the pandemic, her childhood dreams of becoming a writer, and how writing became a lifeline during the crisis. As a doctor and mother who loves to be amidst trees whenever she can, she shares her dreams for a kinder future for her son and coming generations. Hi, Shweta. How are you? I'm fine, Putma. Thank you. How about you? I'm good. I'm really good. And thank you for joining us today from Kerala. You're, you're in Kerala at this moment. Uh, yes, I'm in Kerala. And in Kerala, you are a doctor and you also write poetry.
1: Uh, Yes, I'm a practicing pediatrician, a child specialist, and yeah, I write at times.
0: (laughs) Wonderful. Can you tell me your story about your story as a writer? When and why did you start writing poetry?
1: I started writing poetry during my school days. I had this habit of uh, keeping a diary during those school and college days. And when I s- look through them, it's like, you know, as early as maybe fifth standard, I've written small, small poems. Uh, so I really can't remember why I started writing. But uh, growing up, whenever I felt like uh, I wanted an escape or whenever I felt like the feelings were too overwhelming for me, I used to pin down things and it made me feel better. And maybe that's why. And, you know, after taking this uh, profession, you know, how uh, it's a very demanding profession. uh, And there is a lot of uh, intense emotions involved, like uh, how much ever we put a very stoic, very professional face in front of others. You know, every bit of uh, every suffering affects us of the patients, especially when they are kids. You know, I'm a pediatrician. So naturally it affects me it overwhelms me you know and most of the time I write because uh, I write because I don't have any other choice like it's like it's a compulsive writing you know you put in a lot of effort uh, not effort but it's like you have all this uh, somehow you want to vend it and then you find the words and once it is out of you you feel better Actually, the thing is, uh, irony of it is that I never even show my poem. Most of my poems, I don't show it to others. Many writers have heard that they need this communication. Uh, Like they need the poems to be read by others. It's a modem of communication. For me, it's like being connected with myself. I don't mind if other people don't read it. I just want to feel connected with myself. So maybe that's why I continue writing.
0: That's wonderful that it's a way for you to have a... A, a relationship with yourself in a very conscious and deliberate way because you're putting it into action by by writing, and I guess that's why it's important to you to be able to keep doing that
1: uh, yeah definitely that and not just that at times whenever I want to have fun with myself, like whenever I want to explore, it's like it's my space like that. <laughs> Uh, so, uh, or whenever uh, I whenever I want to experiment, I don't know whether I can think these thoughts. So I write them and then I find, okay, it's not that bad to think these thoughts. Like, you know, uh, such parallel visions, parallel thoughts and all.
0: And of course, it keeps me sane at least. <laughs> right. I'm curious, what came first? Your writing or your desire to be a doctor? Uh, actually, I've...
1: Always wanted to be a writer. I like thing is, Padma, you I mean, I don't know whether I'll sound boisterous or not, but I've always considered myself as a writer. Maybe because I didn't want any other accolades, you know. I wanted only myself to believe that I'm a writer because I'm the only one who reads this. I remember I was just like when the, you gave that uh, this call for the interview I was thinking right from my school days I used to stand in front of the mirror actually sit in front of the mirror and play out this thing like this interview as if some imaginary person is asking me about my writing and then I'm telling it like during class, uh, seventh standard 12 year old and then still I would just turn my hair like this I would adopt the mannerisms things like that and I would talk about my books I don't know know whether it was some kind of craziness or not but yeah before I chose a profession in life or before I I took any other major decisions in life I knew that I was a writer like even though even if it was an unpublished writer even if I was to remain somebody whose works were not at all published during my life still I considered
0: myself a writer. I think that's great because I can't remember who it is that said this, but someone said, it doesn't matter if you call yourself a writer or not. What matters is whether you're writing. So instead of saying, I am a writer, what if you said, I am writing or I write. What do you think? of living or of breathing
1: and I mean right? yes, yes. <laughs> that's okay exactly <laughs> yeah just like you know I'm breathing I'm going on writing as if this is a continuation right that's nice that's a beautiful train of thought
0: yeah I like that and I like how you how you say it like it's like breathing it's something you do without thinking almost and it's you can't live without it how did your decision to become a doctor come about
1: you know I come from a middle-class household in Kerala in Kandor and I'm the eldest of three daughters during our time like ours is not a very developed society we have a lot of stigma still persisting and uh, three daughters meant marry them off soon so definitely growing up you uh, really had to have a lot of ambition so that you would read somewhere and my parents were very supportive So after 12th standard, that is when we choose a professional course, at that time I thought maybe uh, I I liked actually being a doctor. And then I thought I would give back to the, it was a good way to give back to the society because so far society had been kind to me. So I thought maybe this is a nice way to give back. And after joining, actually after joining medical college, I, uh, I straight, I mean, I understood that like many of my colleagues, I understood that. It's not a very glossy or a glamorous profession. It's not like you work in air-conditioned clinics and you cater to the very, you know, the elite and everyone sees you as somebody who is very elite, you know, very knowledgeable and things like that. But you are a bridge, you saw the poorest of the poor. In our college, we had these, uh, we had the destitutes coming, like people who didn't have homes, who used to be brought by the police, for not being criminal, but they were like uh, they were sick on the road and then they were being taken. So we had a lot of patients like that. And uh, hearing these stories, it was like, then I knew that, uh, yes, I have made the right choice. And even after graduating, I thought like after even taking my post-graduation, after becoming a specialist, I thought I'd take up a government job. A what job, sorry? a government job like in a government hospital so it's not like I don't have that uh, promising pay or you know I earn maybe half or one third of my other uh, peers working in private institutions earn but it's okay this is a nice
0: life. So how was your work life transformed by the pandemic last year?
1: Unprecedented to say the least because whenever the first case started you know we were already warned that this thing can come to in our place also it's no matter of now we know that the whole world is like a village everyone being connected to each other so it's just a matter of time before we are also affected so we really need to be very careful. And uh, there were training sessions, our uh, government, uh, like we had a lot of programs. We had a lot of uh, like uh, all those uh, proactive measures were taken like uh, and all those things. So from November to March, we were like waiting for the impact. You know, it ha- hadn't come to us till March. And then on March like 14th, we had uh, the first case. So at that time, we knew that, ah, this is really happening. It would be a total lie if I told that we were not scared or the duty was the only thing that was in our minds. We were really scared, like really, really scared because we didn't know what was happening. We didn't have the statistics. At that time, we didn't know how the mortality would go. We didn't know who all will be affected, who all will live, who all will be left behind. So the first thing that we did is actually uh, perhaps the only logical thing that we thought, I say in terms of we because my husband was, or or two was involved, like we both were involved in this and uh, the first thing that we did is we kept our parents and son together, like both set of parents, my parents as well as his parents, they were staying with us. So we kept them together in my house, as well as my sister, who's also a doctor. So we started living here. It was actually uh, perhaps the most logical decision, but then it was the most difficult decision. Very, very difficult to stick to because this was a three and a half year old child. So how do you go on explaining to a three and a half year old child that you won't be living with your parents anymore? You can't see them anymore. And we thought like maybe he will be the person who will be affected more. But actually, it was us. Uh, At that time, uh, we both actually plunged into our work because we couldn't think of coming back home and uh, facing an empty house. There was a lot of work, mind you. So I didn't mind working. I didn't mind working 24-7. My husband didn't mind working like 48 hours, 72 hours, how much ever you say we'll work because the other option was not good. And it was required of us also. So there was this adrenaline rush going on, and there was this initial phase of total like worry. Everyone, uh, I, I, there was this, um, you know, um, this dread going on, especially amongst the population, amongst others, amongst the people near us. And even people started considering, not like it's not like an accusation or anything, but naturally, others started considering that we may be a source of infection. Like most of the doctors and most of the hospital staff had this feeling, they had experienced it, even though everyone was polite, but there was a a little bit of distance and naturally we welcomed it because even we didn't know whether we were infected or not. So in that rush, actually, the first few months went in that rush, like a lot of patients coming, a lot of deaths, especially my husband, he worked in an ICU setup and especially in a critical care unit also. And he had to deal with a lot of COVID patients. He was on duty while a few deaths also happened. So we came back not knowing when was our turn. We were reluctant to even talk about it. What if talking will bring it? You know, Alec, he especially, he's not a superstitious person. He's actually an agnostic. But still, I did not know whether we didn't know what to believe or what will happen we didn't know whether we even everything like everything became immaterial Uh, whether you save or not whether you take a holiday or not because we really don't know what will happen whether you if you conserve, I mean you conserve your health or not
0: just have a junk food what if you can't eat right it sounds like from the situation you're in, it just sounds like such an overwhelming amount of uncertainty every day. Like there is so much that you didn't know. How did you deal with that besides diving into the work and just focusing on the work? And then you called,
1: you mailed. <laughs> no, but really, because it was such a, you know, uh, it was like, you know, called from the pre-corona life. At that time, I had to remember, I actually got this through a friend. And so he he remembered it from, I mean, college days when I used to write. And then I was like, oh, I had a life before corona. And so I, I definitely, definitely it helped. Definitely the correspondence helped. Definitely the writing helped. Because... um. Uh, during the first few months, like the first three months, we used to just uh, meet uh, him, Adi, that is my son, during uh, only a, like with a distance of around ten meters. Like we used to stand outside the compound, he'll be inside it, and then uh, we used to just meet so that uh, there is no and there is no reason for infecting uh, from uh, passing the infection from us to him. When after that, what happened was these meetings actually we couldn't stay without seeing him even more more than him of course he used to pine for us but more than that even we couldn't stay without meeting him so daily we used to meet him and we used to look forward to that meeting time even when he was there like you know he used to bowl from there and we used to bat from here (laughs) can you imagine that Uh, because we couldn't do anything there were tears in our eyes but what could have we done like that so uh, those uh, time like uh, that time that time in the evening or even at night uh, where we used to look forward and, and every day passed in anticipation of those few uh, minutes and of course then uh, I, I told you i started writing this i started there uh, and it definitely helped definitely definitely helped
0: That's wonderful to know. It must have been so hard not to be able to embrace your son. Oh, it was, I really can't, I really can't
1: imagine how I survived, really. And how long were you separated? Uh, Around six months, yeah. Six, yeah, six months.
0: Wow. But you had that every day you would see each other from a distance.
1: Yeah. Most of the days. thing is, sometimes work used to carry us like when, uh, for a long time. So at times, you know what used to happen? Like one day, I was very late. It was almost 10.30. I have been planning to actually go home from 7 o'clock, but I couldn't. Like one work came after another and it became 10.30. So the thing is, uh, I had told him that I'll be home by 7.30. I'll be coming to meet him. So he was waiting there. And uh, what happened was he refused to go, like go and sleep for a long time. He was sitting there in the corridor and waiting for me. And then by the time uh, he just drops asleep and I came only even half, half an hour after he dropped asleep. So ev- and that day everyone was in tears, like my mom, because he hadn't eaten anything. He was like, no, I'll eat after Ramma comes. Oh, it was, it was really... Uh, what to
0: say? maybe this uh, it was a really, very sad moment. Yeah. Well, but I'm glad that's over now because you're back with him, and Oh, that's that's the best thing that's happened to me. you know <laughs> what
1: happened was like uh, I started noticing that things won't work like this because we couldn't. like uh, Covid nineteen was here for about two to three. Uh, years so we couldn't keep him away like he's a developing child right so we can't uh, what if that was again that was the next uh, worry during the next phase Like, are we doing the right thing? What if his psyche is affected more than this COVID-19? The separation will affect him more during his life, during his future. Are we doing the right thing? Or are we just being carried away by this, you know, pandemic fear? So uh, that was, again, because the moment you start doubting yourself, then that is a different kind of uh, turmoil. So, finally, what we decided is, okay, fine, we'll just bring him home and then we'll try and then we'll pray. (laughs) So, so that's that's how we brought him back. And then I asked them because after like around, yeah, working around uh, seven, eight months, it was almost seven, eight months. And then I asked them whether I can just take a break for a while from this extra duty. So, they told, okay, fine, because you really need a... Uh, break so you can take the very like um, my higher authorities were very supportive and so I took a break brought him back
0: six seven months yeah seven months that's wonderful that you were able to bring him back and and take a break oh
1: that moment when I hugged him no Oh even it was even it wasn't a hundred percent hug, you know. At the bottom of my mind, I was like, "Oh my God, should I should I I have done that uh, RT test before hugging him? What if What if What if?" I can
0: imagine. Have one daughter. Yeah, I have two. My eldest is already twenty five years old. Oh my god, don't tell me. <laughs> I was I was really young when I had her. I was really young when I had her. And then my second is 9. She just turned 9 yesterday.
1: She turned 9 yesterday.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, that's nice. birthday wishes. <laughs> <Brilliant. laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Okay, great. You were talking about taking a break and you asked for a break. So, I'm I I wonder whether now after what you've been through and we're all still living under a pandemic and as you said it might be around for a few more years we're far from done with it or free from it what does rest mean now is it did did it change the meaning of resting or the meaning of recovering uh,
1: definitely, because, you know, uh, one thing that uh, I learned was never to take anything for granted. Because we even, even the health, you know, which, of which we were proud, like even this youth, mm-hmm. comparative youth, uh, uh, not, uh, nothing could be taken for granted. So now rest means like hugging my child, getting maybe 30 minutes of straight sleep. You know, such simple things, able to read a book, like maybe two, three chapters without interruption and things like that. No long drives, no need of vacations, no need of holidays. Thank you. I'm so happy if I can spend even a
0: small bit of time with my loved ones. (laughs) That's wonderful. The simplest things become the most important. Again, I think it's really yeah. You, you also mentioned that writing was something that, that helped you. So I'll go now to your poem, which you uh, wrote for Harvest Moon, our forthcoming anthology. And you wrote it as a letter to your son, right? Yes. And did you write that while you were separated from him? Yes, I wrote that while
1: I was separated.
0: He was there. Uh, at my parents' house, and then I wrote it like that. I was quite moved. Um, I remember you, you spoke of the uncertainty in a way, well, like a mother would to a child. Like, you couldn't really say directly what was happening, but the poem sort of communicated that it needs to be this way for now, and we're not sure what's going to happen but this is what's best. Uh, Exactly, the thing is, I didn't even know whether I would,
1: uh, to tell you the truth, Padma, I didn't even know whether I would live to see the day when he reads the poem aloud. So I was like, maybe this was my chance at, you know, being in his mind. Oh, it sounds quite melodramatic now, but the thing is, at that time I was really scared. What if I'm gonna leave? And I'm going to leave without any, like, he's just a three-year-old boy. You really can't tell any, you really can't convey any philosophy or really, you can't have, like, anything that might be etched in his memories, like, right? Because uh, memories of a -a three-and-a-half-year-old hardly carries over to the adulthood. We really don't know. So I was like, will he remember me when he gets old, like, when he grows up without me in a world without me? And I thought maybe this was a you know an opportunity, and that maybe that was why like uh, I cried like uh, while writing it, and after completing I was like okay fine at least at least my son will know me, like even if something happens to me at least he'll know that he was not abandoned, and uh, sent off to his grandmother. He was loved, and this was a decision out of love. And actually, I wanted him to take the same decisions, like, because love can be not just getting, but also about giving. So I wanted him to feel the same kind of love in his life towards the things that matter, that matter to him, definitely. Uh, And I wanted him to be courageous enough to take the right decision for the sake of others. I want him to have a a sustainable and eco-friendly. Can I use that word? Like, you know, you love something. Like you love a flower, you don't pluck it. You just keep it there, right? I wanted him to have the same thing. I wanted him to feel the same
0: thing. I I couldn't help but smile and laugh a little bit when you said, can I use that word? Because, of course, you're um, referring to... The list of prohibited words that you received as an agam contributor, and there were some words that we said you can't use, <laughs> um, the jargon mainly. But of course, you can say it in in this context. And that's what you just described is one of the things that really um, stands out in the poem also, is um, you, as a mother, in the poem, you're really telling your son to to be loving, but not just to other people, but also towards nature. And now that you're back with your son and spending time together again, I wonder what what relationships do you see or observe forming between your son and nature, or what relationships are you yourself trying to nurture for your son?
1: During the time of the pandemic, uh, like what refreshed me was that he used to uh, take active participation in this, uh, you know, planting of the vegetable garden because all four uh, grandparents, they got together. And the first thing that they did was, you know, planting. So there was a small bit of vegetable garden there. He he was full time in the sunlight in the uh, like He was playing in the mud. And there was nobody to tell him, come, 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 have a bath. (laughs) You know how grandparents are like, they were totally on to him. So he had a gala time of his life. So after coming back here, he also started like, he started experimenting with plants like uh, in small uh, containers and all, he started uh, growing seeds. He started seeing the plants. So uh, not that they stood, like because uh, we, we stay in a flat and we don't have so much of conditions to um, sustain a lot of plants and he's a bit allergic. So I couldn't risk keeping indoor plants. Indoor plants are a bit of a no-no for allergic kids. Uh, we really don't know whether pollen will get problematic or not. But still he had this feeling he wanted to grow things. He was surprised by it. He was like, oh, my God, see the flower leaves are coming. See, see, wow, this is coming. It's grown big, just like me. And then one day, I actually, he surprised me one day when uh, he had this uh, class on circus. And now it is online class everywhere, not the regular classes. So during the time a video was shown to him, uh, telling about the things in, in the circus like I mean the people in the circus and what are other things happening and in that he saw the jugglers he saw the gymnasts and then he saw the animals and then he was aghast he was like why are the animals here they should be in jungle and that was a new word he had uh, learned recently and he was like ma they are wild animals they should be in jungle. And then I was like, right, you're right. And I felt proud. Like it was not something like I told him or something like some anybody told him. Like uh, we don't teach kids activism, right? Uh, so it came from him. He felt that there was something wrong with animals being made to do things like that in an artificial environment. And that was something which made me proud as a mother. And so I, I really have hope maybe uh, and then it came like a reassurance okay oh, shweta don't worry you're raising him right don't, not that i take a
0: credit or anything but you know how mothers are of course of course and i'm sure you are it's it's also striking how in the poem you draw his attention as well to the flooding and of course in 2018 kerala suffered really devastating floods um and did that continue from 2018? Uh, was there flooding during the pandemic? If so, that would have been horrible for people.
1: Yeah, it was there in 2019. Like 2018 was the most devastating flood. Close to 500 people, you know, died. And there were landslides also. Then uh, in 2019, also, there was flooding. In 2018, what happened was it was in the southern parts of the state. And in 2019, it was in the northern parts of the state, including Kannur, the city in which I live. So we had this floods, uh, And uh, even though we were not very much hit, like it was there, and it was there in my workplace. I work in a primary health center. It's a rural setting, you know, a small hospital in front uh, on the top of a hill where old people usually come. They chat with me for a while like that, you know, the common GP setting. So uh, what happened was there, uh, there's a river which flooded and uh, we had to move a few families to the camp. So uh, during that time, it was very difficult for them. Like these were the people who didn't have much because they were really not only financially poor, but they had a lot of health issues also. Uh, So it was uh, really difficult for them to get adjusted there. You know, all the medicine timings, uh, many of them, their BPs shot up, like their blood pressures shot up, and they were really worried like that. And there were people who were taking medicines for a lot of other diseases. So uh, they were uh, really were. We saw that, uh, you know, people, that reality hit me only during, I mean, not only, but still it hit me more during the 2019 flood, even though it was not as disastrous, like everyone was safe. There was no life lost. But still, uh, like, uh, even you saw the water levels coming up, there is a feeling of dread. Uh, again, there is an uncertainty whether or not this will go away. And uh, last year also, there was this weather forecast that Kerala may have a flood. But fortunately, it was not there. It was averted because we really don't know what to do. Because uh, following a COVID protocol in a medical camp after floods, it was a real recipe for a disaster. So we had taken measures, we had uh, increased the number of, uh, seen more tentative sites and also camps so that we can at least accommodate one family in a small room like that. But fortunately, it was not there. Somehow it got averted
0: and so uh, we were lucky. Yeah, that would have been really difficult if it it had happened in 2020 during the pandemic. So... I wonder, like here in the Philippines, there's a lot of discussion relating, for example, the super typhoons to climate change. Is there any discussion like that also in in Kerala and with the flooding? There were discussions going on. Because we, uh,
1: you know, the uh, thing is, even though we can't uh, actually pinpoint a particular reason, for this flooding but we know that a multitude of reasons have culminated in floods and of course deforestation is one it sounds very much cliche but the thing is we really can't ignore global warming even though how much ever we technically say that it's this current going on in the arabian sea this low pressure thing happening in the arabian sea and all but we know that simply a low pressure thing doesn't happen like that right Uh, i mean it is definitely a culmination of, uh, you know, years of depletion of nature. And that is something which is being unsaid, but everyone knows. And that undercurrent is definitely going on even in here, Kerala because there were reports on what to do to prevent further spreads, reports which were, you know, told as which were um, marked as being unscientific, reports that were ignored and things like that. But the thing is, no one says about that. And even though nobody talks aloud about it, not just, no, I mean, I can't say nobody, because definitely there are people here who really feel, they truly feel about nature. And even others who are timid or who are afraid to speak aloud, in the minds of people, we know that things have changed. Things have, uh, like uh, the changes which has happened for the past maybe 10, 20 years have culminated in such things. And it's not like to blame one person or to blame uh, one authority or anything of that sort. We ourselves are being responsible for this. Kerala always had a moderate climate, usually. So now it's only February and the temperatures are soaring. We had this, we were this, uh, you know, this uh, piece of land uh, at the side of the sea. It was always moderate. We never had very hot summers or very cold winters. We never used to have. But now the temperatures are soaring. It's, it has already reached forty degree in February. So we really don't know. Yeah, in Palakkad, like one of our districts, it has already reached forty degree, and we really don't know what will happen without uh, like when during May, uh, the monsoons have reduced. Like a lot of things are happening, and they don't
0: simply happen. Yeah. As a doctor. And after what we've been through, what we're still going through, rather, with COVID-19, what do you think uh, or what connections do you see between care and how people care for each other, but also medical care and this, this planetary climate crisis? I think it's like... Uh
1: and one thing is like you know when climate is affected like uh, from a doctor's point of view and definitely uh, the uh, what to say the morbidity pattern that is the pattern of diseases occurring to a society changes and that has a direct proportion to the climate that has a direct bearing on the climatic change I, I'm not here for uh, like tall claims or anything. And I don't claim that I know everything behind the virology or behind how exotic viruses are taking uh, like uh, becoming common or anything of that sort. But still, there are uh, simple things, like few simple things from maybe a primary physician point of view. Like uh, when there is water scarcity, definitely waterborne diseases like hepatitis, all these things are on the rise. And the problem is the irony if it is Patma, people are not affected equally. Like the thing is the poor, they are affected more because others have access to quality water. Uh, So the poor people who don't have access to quality water, when water becomes scarce and the common pool is affected, then definitely a lot more of people who don't have the basic amenities, they are getting more affected. The people in the lowest rate of society are getting affected. And this is just one example of how climate can and then we had heat strokes. Like heat strokes were unheard of in our state. But then during the year before the last, we had heat strokes. Uh, so, and that too, again, here, uh, the laborers are being affected more because they are out in the sun. And I I actually asked them, like one of them who came to me with a heat sore, I asked him, uh, don't work like this, like because of the sunlight, because of the heat stroke, if you continue working, then you will have this. And then he was like, then what else can I do? It's true. Like even during the pandemic, it was there. We asked them to reverse quarantine the old people, let not the old people come out, let not uh, let them not go to work. But then they ask how, how how else? Of course the government is helping, but still, you know, there are a lot of other needs.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's something also that we've we discuss often or talk about is You know, when we talk about climate change, it's not just about the environment or about nature. It's also about people, especially about people. And it's about how we live and how the majority will be able to live. So we also always say, more than just surviving the climate crisis we need to be able to thrive people need to be able to thrive even if there's climate change and how do we how do we ensure that so there's a lot of work we all need to do um, doctors, writers, poets, scientists, politicians, business people there's a lot that needs to be done to allay the suffering. I mean, the change really has to be immense. The change maybe has to be, or changes rather, have to be as big as or bigger than the crisis itself. But for you as Shweta, as a mother, when you think about climate change or the climate crisis, where does your heart go? Where do you find yourself?
1: I wish because I really don't know whether it, it has become a sort of wish because now we are almost, you know, we are already depleted. Like we have taken, we have done away with most of our resources. So I wish my future generation also had a, a greener, a greener planet. Like, uh, you know, they uh, they could uh, see the meadows, you know, and uh, breathe in uh, real fresh air because we really don't know with the pollution index going on. And then I wonder whether it is such a tall wish, you know. It was something which we took for granted, like air. But I wonder whether, like, if when Adi comes to, me, like, when Adi grows up to my age, will he be able to take, like, things like this granted for his children? Maybe till that time, maybe it it will be there. But you know, like that. So a sustainable life. What if we can go back? What if we can, uh, you know, see more species? Like we can see more animals, more kind of trees. You know, my like my grandma used to know about a variety of herbs. Thing is, I don't uh, even recognize them. That's the truth. And even if I study it in a botany book, I don't know whether I can see it in real life. That is there. So. uh, uh, I wish
0: such things came back. It's also um, a relationship. Speaking of relationships with nature and with the environment, your grandma's knowledge and her ability to identify herbs and what they're used for, if it's for to treat a stomach, a painful stomach maybe, or a headache. Yeah, that's something that we're losing and... I agree with you. It would be good to bring it back somehow. So now I'll come to the last question, which is a fun question because you mentioned species of animals and plants. So is there a uh, other than human or non-human species that has a special place in your life?
1: Truth is Batma, I think you'll have to bleed this whole thing because I'm scared of pets.
0: Oh really? <laughs> what a, and you can't have plants because Adi is allergic. <laughs> plants are a little more sub, submissive. <laughs> That's funny.
1: I have I have been chased by a duck once, you know? A duck? Who's scared of duck? <laughs> I think we'll include that. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so it has always been trees ah any particular tree
1: <laughs> it was like you know we had this uh, in our system like uh, in our like in the culture in which i was brought up we had this carve concept Kavu means it's like, you know, a a particular land or a a particular area of of various trees and plants and whatnot. And it was kept there undisturbed. And each household had this during the old times. Most of the households, not every, definitely, but most of the households had this. And definitely the way of our ancestors to conserve this was to worship. So, there was this small temple and then uh, a, a very nice, uh, in, uh, in this expanse of in the small area of, uh, what to say, uh, uh, I can't say a forest, but maybe a small area of a lot of trees and plants. And in the middle of this, it there was a small temple and the kind of uh, peace that you get from there. I mean, I'm not talking it in terms of religion or anything. I'm just talking it in terms of the ambience you get from there, the kind of connection that you feel, the kind of uh, oneness that you feel with the nature. Simply by sitting there and uh, closing your eyes, just listening to the sounds of the birds, the chirpings of the squirrel, the rustling of the leaves, that... Uh, I don't think that going anywhere in this world has given me a peace of mind or that a feeling of oneness which this place has given. Like it might be a very personal thing. It may not be the same for others. It may have a lot of other connotations, religious or otherwise for other people. But for me, it's like, you know, that feeling of being connected, the feeling of being, you know, experiencing a oneness with you and the world like that. And of course, with the ancestors, the your, you know, that lineage. Uh, I wonder, like, you know, maybe uh, some hundreds of years ago, somebody like me would have sit here and uh, sat here in the same spot, and uh, thinking of things which maybe I'm thinking now. So, and maybe I, I wish uh, such. I wish my, uh, you know, my future generations, like, you know, also went there and they got the same peace of mind while sitting there. And most, uh, uh, most importantly, I wish it is preserved there for them so that they can at least experiment that feel.
0: That's so beautiful. Thank you. Could you tell me again what you call that place that is left undisturbed? Kavu. How do you spell that? So we make sure that we get it right when we write it down. K-A-V-U, Kavu. Kavu, okay. That's lovely. It's such a lovely idea or that that space is reserved and that almost everyone used to have it before. That's so beautiful. And Kavu is a Malayalam word. Yeah, it's a Malayalam word. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much, Sweta, for everything you shared with us today. So lovely. Thank you, Bhatma.
1: Thank you, Bhatma, for giving me this opportunity. Like I told you, no? It's a dream come true. <laughs> it's been a dream since what? Like 20 years? <laughs>
0: <laughs> Finally someone's interviewed. Finally me someone has interviewed me. I can't believe it. So <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you for listening. Agam the Climate Podcast is produced by the Institute for Climate and Sustainable Cities and Ground Bravo Studios with music by Rohan Remando. Follow Agam the Climate Podcast on Spotify, Anchor, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. To learn more about our creative collaborations and our forthcoming anthology of climate literature from the Global South, visit our website agam.ph. That's A-G-A-M dot P-H. You can also engage with Agam Agenda on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook.